Okay, is that okay? Not too bad. Hopefully you found um, this somewhat refreshing compared to reading a bunch of um, laws that were intended just for priests. I heard that sound at 5 o'clock this morning. <laughs> it, it was thunder. Okay, uh, hopefully you found it a little easier to read because it was big swaths of narrative, right? And, 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 and proof, proof, really, that we all find stories more compelling than rules. I just, just honestly, right? So it's an interesting thing to think about that half of the Pentateuch, half of the Torah, is narrative and the other half are rules. Surely, when people were memorizing that for their bar mitzvah, they found the stories a lot easier than the rules, right? And, and, and what we get to do today is talk about what happens after Moses. And, and I don't know if... if um, it's really difficult to appreciate how important Moses is if you're Jewish and in the Hebrew Bible. I mean, Moses is like Jesus, <laughs> Uh, and, and, and I think I told you this week, last week. I really spun my wheels and probably drove you crazy. So grateful to see you back. Um, but um, the rabbis are insistent that nobody knew where Moses was buried for a theological reason. People would have worshipped him. They would have made Moses into Jesus. Uh, they would have venerated his tomb. Um, they would have prayed to Moses, not to God. So the rabbis say when Moses dies and nobody knows where he's buried to this day, that's God helping the people not to make an idol out of a human being. Now, I didn't get to tell you this last week, and I won't get to confirm it 100% until I go in January to Jordan, but you know, Mount Nebo is in Jordan. And for those of you who went to Israel... We didn't really go to Jericho because guess what? There's nothing to see. But we did drive by there, sort of southerly in the Dead Sea. Jericho is really down from Jerusalem. It's one of the older cities in the world. So at the end of his life, God lets Moses see the promised land from Mount Nebo, and it looked like all the area around the Dead Sea. If you went to Israel, would you describe that area around the Dead Sea? It's all dead. I don't even just mean the Dead Sea itself. It's brown. It's a desert. So God says, Moses, take a look at the promised land. In my head, for the longest time, he saw the Sea of Galilee. If you were there, that looks like Ireland. It's emerald and green and fertile. When you look from Mount Nebo, God, are you sure? We've just been walking through this for 40 years. And guess what is right opposite Mount Nebo is Jericho, a fortified walled city, and they're supposed to go take that. So in some ways, Moses' last vision is a bit of a downer. I just, I just want you to know, God says, look, this is where you've been laboring 40 years to bring the people into. <sighs> no wonder he died after seeing it. Okay. <laughs> This brings up the problem of succession because Moses has led the people. Not only did he free the people, but he's led them for 40 years. Now, 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 really, when you think 40, we always have to be a little suspicious of 40. I don't mean it's not real. I just know that the Bible uses numbers to mean something more than history. The Bible uses numbers in a way that's sort of legendary or iconic, archetypal. Are those words okay? 
Doesn't mean they're not true. It just means that they're actually being used for something greater than historicity. 40 is a number for a rain for 40 days and 40 nights. The people went through the desert for 40 years. Jesus is tempted, what do you know, 40 days and 40 nights. We get to lots of 40s, and they're really a number of completeness. Sometimes we think a generation is 40 years. And, and the Bible basically says the reason it's 40 is so that all the people who were in Egypt could die <laughs> as either punishment or rehabilitation before they got to the promised land. But, but you need to know that 40 um, is not the length of a generation. Still today, it's not. A generation today is probably like 30 years, but back then, average life expectancy was 30 years at the most. So really, a generation would turn in about 18, 18 years. So 40 is actually probably turned two generations. Whatever. Just so you know, 40 years. So here's Moses. Who's going to be in charge now? I have a question. What happened to Moses' sons? They weren't good. <laughs> You don't hear about Gershom. We know he had them. Yeah, we do. But and you, you kind of why they didn't take up the... This is a real interesting theme that we're going to read about biblically. And, and I'm so glad you mentioned it because next week we're going to read about the judge, priest, quasi-king Samuel who has plenty of kids. Samuel's a great guy. His kids are not good. <laughs> And, and next week you're going to read, literally in the Bible, people say, Samuel, we want a king because your kids aren't like you. And maybe this is the deal with Moses. You ever known really good people that have not so great kids? <laughs> I used to be a high school teacher, and when kids weren't good, I always thought, symptom bearers. You know, it's just the parents. I've really wakened up <laughs> to the falsehood of that idea. Let me tell you what. But... but um, <coughs> I think it's a great comment, and in some ways, you can see that even though the Bible supports heredity, it challenges heredity as well. And, and this is an interesting thing to think about. Remember I told you, I think one of the neat things about the Bible, and Bible means books, not one book, is that the Bible constantly has conversations with itself. Constantly. I'm going to clue you into one of them in just a second, but this is a great conversation. Are things passed hereditarily, or are they passed charismatically? You know, we're not the only major Abrahamic religion to wonder about this. Judaism worries about it, and so does Islam. If you're wondering why there's Shiites and Sunnites, it's all about the question of heredity or charism. Oh, the, the sins of the father. That's a big one to do. You got it, sure is. And again, the Bible will disagree with itself, and I want to point out, or not disagree, but converse with itself. I think the reason it, it does it, because truth is not an easy thing. Truth often, and, and this is, we owe this to the history of Romanticism, is expressed in paradox. It's often somewhere in the middle. I mean, truth's a difficult thing, don't you think? I mean, some things we think are really easy, but, I, but again, I think life is in general lived in grays, not just hard black, hard white. And, and I think the Bible honestly converses with itself so that we can find some, some middle ground. I'm going to share more with you about that in a second. Great question. Joshua, by the way, means Joshua is in Hebrew written, the, 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 the word is, it would be pronounced Yahshua. Now you see this, that's the first part of God's holy name, and then this word, Shua, means saves. Yahshua. 
So God saves. That's his name. That's who he's supposed to be. Interestingly enough, Jesus' name in Hebrew, Yahshua, God saves. That's who he is. You see, this is what the Bible is telling us. In Hebrew, it's um, Yeshua. Uh, not, not Hebrew. In Aramaic, it's Yeshua. And in Greek, it's Jesus. But, but it comes back to this. Um, notice that in Joshua, the book, Joshua is the new Moses. Moses parted the Reed Sea. People walk through it. Joshua parts the Jordan River. People walk through it. Moses kills some big military figures, Og of Bashan, Sihon of Gad. Joshua is a strong warrior. Moses meets God at the burning bush. Joshua meets God outside the city of Jericho. Both people are told, take your shoes off. Did you notice? Um, definitely saying that Joshua is the new Moses. <laughs> Moses gives them a covenant. Joshua gives them a covenant before he dies, okay? Um, in seminary, I had a teacher who, who made us, when we read through biblical books on a test, would give us a certain word or phrase, and we had to, based on that verse or word or phrase, identify the book. It wasn't hard, because in Joshua, the phrase is, be strong and courageous, which happens over and over and over again, especially in the first chapter. Joshua, be strong and courageous, and if you'll be strong and courageous, I'll deliver you into the land, so don't fear, just be strong and courageous. <laughs> That's how the book reads. This is about people subduing a land, and this is their mantra. And, and, and the bottom line is, don't deviate from the instructions. Obey even if you don't understand. Now, I want you to think through this. As a grown-up, that doesn't work for me. I don't think it would work for you. If I were to say, here's a rule, you just do it. And if you said, Mike, why should we do that rule? And I said, be strong and courageous and don't deviate from the rule. You would say, right, but why should we do that? <laughs> be, or you would ignore it, either one, like speed limits. So, so, so um, <clears throat> I want you to think through that part of what this book is, is, is doing, what part of what the Bible does, actually is, is speaking to us at levels of development. Because, you know, a five-year-old doesn't really have, especially a two-year-old, doesn't have the capacity for you to explain the rule. Why shouldn't I play in the street? The answer is, you don't play in the street. <laughs> now, you can say, because I'm worried about your safety. That makes no sense to a two-year-old. So you can say it, but then you follow it up with, and so don't ever play in the street, right? I mean, you want the child to memorize the rule, even if they don't understand it, they have to keep it, right? That's what we do with children. But as they grow and their brains work, it's critical that they understand the rule so that they know why they should keep it and when there are exceptions to the rule. Like if the street's barricaded closed and there's no cars coming, probably not as big of a risk. It's important that kids know, aha, but that's a time when it's okay to be in the street. Because there are times it's okay to be in the street, right? So we, we, we want our kids to think, think critically, but when they're too young, they can't do it. So I, I want to point out, part of what's interesting in Bible is that sometimes we have rules, just do them, and that's actually speaking to a level of our development, I think. And sometimes we have conversations about whether the rules should be stated as such and what the exceptions are. Does that, does, does that make sense, what I'm saying? Again, it's important that we not approach a five-year-old like a 25-year-old, because they don't have the same brain, literally, 
And I think the Bible gets that, actually. Um, notice what's happened as they come into the land. They've already allotted an inheritance to the tribes. Now, they haven't even seen the land. <laughs> so, so the lady in the video is telling you, in some ways, this is being worked backward. Maybe, but, but the first thing that happens is they say, hey, Reuben and Gad, you're getting this land to the east of the Jordan, but you have to come fight with us. So leave your women and children behind, and you come fight with us. This is the first time we got that information in the Bible, that certain tribes get certain geographies. Did you notice? And again, they haven't even been into the land. How do they know what it looks like, and how do they know where people go? So again, helpful to think this is written retroactively. Does this make sense? And it's important to notice, too, that at this time, because... Each tribe or each clan, and clans is probably a good way to think about this, um, each clan gets its own sort of zone that really Israel is not a unified nation. It's a bunch of clans. And part of what's being set up in Joshua is that the clans don't get united until there's a king. And that's what a king does. A king takes different (coughs) tribes or clans and gets them to act as one coherent body. Not good kings, that is poor kings, are not successful in this. They might mobilize three out of seven, right? This was the, if you know anything about Scottish history, this was the big problem. The clans always fought with each other about should we be unified and resist England? Should we join England? You can see the movie Braveheart, which is a very dumbed down version of that. And the problem is the clans won't unite. This is going to happen in the book uh, that we read. It even happens in Judges where um, some of the clans are joining the enemy's side against their other clans. They get killed. No surprise. Okay. (laughs) We go through the Jordan. This is sort of neat. Joshua commands the ark. The ark splits the stuff out. Moses didn't have an ark. He just had a staff, right? But, but things have changed a little, so, so change it with the times. Joshua builds in the middle of the Jordan a pile of rocks. He uses 12 because there's 12 clans. This is definitely an etiology, a story that explains how something came to be. Because no doubt there's a pile of rocks in the middle of the Jordan River. And people said, where'd that come from? It came from when Joshua did this thing and put these 12 things. And it comes really close to a dangerous word you'll see next week. You will see it. And the word is an Ebenezer. Does anybody know this one? I don't just mean Scrooge. There's an old version of um, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing. Do you know this one? Here I lay my Ebenezer. Does anybody know that line? Here I lay my Ebenezer. It's in the Methodist temple. It's not in ours. Ebenezer in Hebrew means stone of my helping. So could mean a couple of things. Here's a monument to a place I was helped by God. Could also mean the stone helped me. <laughs> it's very ambiguous. Some Asherah poles are made out of stone. Asherah poles could be Ebenezer's. They're idols. Pay attention as we read uh, next week. Anyway, there there they go. They cross. Joshua sends spies out again. Who sent spies the first time? 
Moses, this already happened. Why do it again? Because Joshua is doing just what Moses did, right? They send spies out, and you notice where the spies go. <laughs> the very first place the spies go is a brothel. Now remember, brothels aren't like red light districts today. Brothels are in temples. The first place the spies go is to a temple to a foreign god. And they hide out with the priestesses who we would call prostitutes. But remember, in the eyes of the Jerichoites, the, the, the prostitute is a priestess. How strange. <laughs> That's where the spies go. Notice what's really interesting is that Rahab, who is a priestess, a prostitute we call her, she's a priestess. Um, she says, we know God's going to overthrow the city. The spies don't seem to know that at all. The spies think they're going to fail. Notice that the people of Jericho have more faith in God than the people of Israel do. This is an interesting thing. Who knows how old this is? We're going to read books later that say all foreign people are evil, kill them, kill their gods, kill all their practice. But, but it's almost like the Bible's having a conversation with itself because Rahab has more faith in the God of Israel than the people of Israel do. So she's spared. How interesting that Rahab finds her way in Matthew's genealogy um, of Jesus. She's in it. Rahab is. Says another foreign woman named Ruth. Only in Matthew's. But in some ways saying these outside foreign people are not all bad. Some of them are very faithful. Jericho is a walled city. And, you know, sometimes we forget in the ancient world that there's really one way to fight a walled city, maybe two. Option A, this would be 95% of the time, you surround the city in a siege and you just try to starve them out. Siege does not mean you have catapults. They don't have that. Siege does not mean that you dig tunnels under walls. Hard to do, especially when it's a rock foundation. 5% of the time, you could do that. 5% of the time. 95%, a siege is going to last you two or three years. And you have to basically sequester the city from the whole environment until they start starving and, and they get desperate. They open the gate and try to fight a passage out. Um, we'll read about this. It's extremely brutal. Jerusalem gets sieged a number of times. This is where people eat their animals. This is where people eat each other. This is where women eat their children. It's just awful, right? Uh, that's the only way that they could take Jericho, and they seem really worried about whether or not they can even successfully siege it. Do you notice? Uh, so here comes this sort of miracle for them, which is that they get to walk around the city. How many times? Seven times, and on the seventh day, they do it seven times. What do you know? Seven, sort of a magic number. And then the walls fall down miraculously because God fights for them. Now, Rahab's house is built into the walls. So how it doesn't fall down, the Bible doesn't care, although one would wonder if the walls fall down, what happened to Rahab's house, which is in the wall. That's normal, by the way, that people lived in the walls. And, and just a quick reminder, a, a city might comprise a geographic area this big, but the city itself is not even that big. 
Most people don't live in the city. There's no running water. There's nowhere to go potty. <laughs> you can't grow anything in that little city. You grow it all out here and you come in and sell it. And during a time of siege, you come in and you hope there's a peace brokered quickly because all these people out here barely fit in here. So, so you could almost be really living in something like three to four square foot per person space inside that city for the duration of the siege. Terrible thing to do, right? So with a population density that big, if the walls suddenly fell down and you were encircled by an enemy, you, how would you possibly fight your way out? I mean, you wouldn't even have any room. You wouldn't have any room. Does, does it make sense? This is a crowd of people. The walls are removed and they're just stuck in a group. And, and, and this explains a little bit how there's this wholesale slaughter of people in Jericho. You got it. But there is a lot of evidence to support that Jericho has had series of walls. Some have had to be rebuilt, torn down, rebuilt. So do we have evidence of the big fall? No. Do we have evidence of three million people coming out of Egypt? No. Uh, but I think, and this is good, I don't want to tell you the story didn't happen. I think the question is, what is the story trying to tell us? The story is trying to tell us Israel's core foundation is being delivered from Egypt, right? Not a little bit of it. That's where the people came from. So their core identity is they were slaves, God delivered them. And what about this? Uh, well, I don't know. I'm put that question to you. What do you think the story of Jericho is trying to teach us about how we're supposed to live? Or about who God is? Notice in the story, the people can't fight for themselves. God fights for them. Now, that's interesting. That's interesting. God fights their battles for them. When they listen. <laughs> when they don't, they fight for themselves. I don't really know what that means. I, I do want to point out that the day before Jericho, Joshua is just walking around one day and sees the commander of the Lord's army. Who is that? <laughs> Who commands the Lord's army? Could be an angel. You know, we have a name for that angel. It's Michael. <laughs> but I'd ask you, who's the commander of the United States Army? Oh, the president. So who commands God's army? <laughs> Joshua's walking around and sees God. Now, we're not real comfortable with that, because how can you see God and live? Joshua is walking around and sees God, and God says, take your shoes off. <laughs> What did God look like? We don't know. But notice Joshua's first question. This is like an Abraham Lincoln kind of question, if you know this line. Joshua says, whose side are you on? And Joshua said, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. I'm on my own side. <laughs> That's an interesting one, right? The, the Abraham Lincoln quote is, let's not ever aspire to have God on our side. Let's aspire to be on God's side. This is an interesting thought. Because a lot of ways we pray and think is that God takes our side instead of, whew, maybe we could take God's side. 
Now, I don't want to mess with patriotism, but it seems like we should say the converse. Instead of saying, God bless America, perhaps the thing to say is, America bless God. It's very, very different. Very, very different to think about that America could bless or be a blessing to God instead of saying, these are our plans, God get behind us. You, you, you know what I mean? It happens right up here in Joshua. That's kind of a cool sermon. <laughs> Just saying, you'll never hear it at a change of command in the military. I know, I've been to this. Um, do you notice that the people under Moses have not circumcised anybody? And that's like the most important thing you can do if you're Jewish. Where did that come from? <laughs> For 40 years, they haven't circumcised their kids. That means there's kids that have not been cut into the covenant. Seems really weird to me, doesn't it? Hard to say if that's a symbol of Joshua being the new Moses again. Or the people were just disobedient. And why did Moses let them be disobedient? Don't you wonder? You know what else they haven't done in 40 years? They haven't celebrated the Passover. (laughs) Well, that's like the most important thing you can do. Why haven't they been doing that? I don't know. The day they do, no more manna. Um, There's a kind of war that the people are supposed to fight, and we'll read this uh, throughout here. When they cross the Jordan, that's when they circumcise their kids, that's when they have the Passover, and, and all that happens the same day, and it's all gone. I'm going to warn you, when you cross the Jordan opposite Jericho, if you don't have manna, you're going to be hungry. (laughs) There's no grapes growing there. Milk and honey, Mm -mm. it's not coming out of of, of fountains, you know, (laughs) it's in the middle of the desert. Gives them extra incentive to take over Jericho, right? Because as much as they are blocking Jericho's supplies, they don't have very many of their own. So, so you've got to hurry this thing along. There's a way of, of fighting that they're supposed to do. This is called harem. In Hebrew, it means holy war. Oh, what's that word that we're all afraid of? Uh, jihad. It's like that. Jihad. This is the equivalent. Holy, holy war or holy struggle. And under harem, things are put under the ban. This is in quotes. The ban. The rules for holy war are not good. I just want to let you know. Um, in holy war, you kill everything. That's called genocide. So, so you kill all the men. Sometimes you can have the women and children to be your slaves or your concubines, but in general, you should kill them too. Uh, in Jericho, they're supposed to kill all the animals. And then you take all the plunder, and you either give it to the priests... You can tell a priest came up with this idea. Give all the plunder to the priest. I'll give it to God on your behalf. As they stuff their pockets. Or or you burn it all up. You burn all of it. Now, that's holy war. It's it's a set-apart way of fighting because nobody's ever done it, including in the Bible. Notice, the people don't do it. Achan steals stuff. So not everybody ever does this. Beyond that, I'm not really sure it's a good way of fighting. Is this okay to say? I'm not really sure that genocide is really a good plan. It doesn't really ring um, with righteousness, as I understand the word righteousness, 
to kill men, women, and children in a wholesale slaughter. Burning the stuff is interesting, because if you were to get rid of all the spoil, nobody would want to fight that war. There'd be no profit in it except for psychopaths that want to kill men, women, and children. Do, do, do you get what I'm saying? Like if we went to, this would be the equivalent to us as a, as a nation invading a Middle Eastern country, sucking all the oil out of the ground and burning it publicly. And you'd say, Mike, that would pollute the earth. And, and we should do something good with all that oil. Yeah, right, we should. That's not a holy war, though. <laughs> a holy war is when no one profits. This is why I've said no one will ever fight in that war. <laughs> Nobody will do that. The soldiers don't get paid, by the way. And they may not get fed by the state. There's no state. There's a bunch of clans. If you were called up to fight in that one, would you fight that one? Would you be comfortable with your children being officers? <laughs> There's no officers, see? Everyone does what they want. <laughs> I just want you to think through this, right? This is called holy war. And, 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 and I think there's two questions. Number one, is this really how God wants wars to be waged? Or is this something so impossible to do that it's saying the people didn't follow with blind obedience and that's why they didn't always win? Do you, do you get what I'm saying? Well, I think they both ought to be anathema to us. I mean, I, I, do, I do think they are. I think we get that you could theoretically eliminate communism by killing every communist on the planet. Although we know at a certain point that people would be so disgusted with your policies that they would become communists, right? I mean, this is a hard thing. If you kill terrorists through means of terror, you've just become terrorists, and you're going to inspire new ones. You, you know, I mean, that's what's hard about the war on How do you fight terror? I mean, this is a really uh, good question that comes up in Joshua. I, I'm, by the way, I'm not trying to be critical of the United States. I'm not. I, I, I'm trying to say I'm not aware of any country in the history of the world fighting wars like this, including in the book of Joshua. And I did have a good friend, and, I, and, and you know, I don't want to be too preachy because I don't really know what I'm preaching here. I did have a really good friend who was a four-star admiral in Coronado, and, and he said this interesting quote that some people bristle at, but I think it makes sense. He said, there's no just wars. There's no just wars. There are just causes for war, but there are no just wars. And I, and I think that's really worth sitting on, you know? War itself, he thought, was full of evil, even if the causes were righteous. And I think that's, I mean, I think that's probably right. I'm not a warrior, but, but uh, it seem, seems right to me. And, and, and that comes back here, right? Comes back. They got one of the ten words, don't kill. Don't kill. And that's, that's what they're now ordered to do. A um, couple weird things happen here. They, they hang the, the, the commander and then they throw rubble on top, right? They throw rubble on top and that tells you why there's a rubble pile. And 
there is this early pronouncement that cursed is anybody who hangs on a tree. It's important, you know, human beings are never hung, they're always hanged. I don't know why I learned this in the eighth grade and it's really, really important. Um, human beings are never hung, that means something else. That's like an HBO show um, that's really not good. Hanging is any time, so he was hanged or she was hanged on a tree, on a gallows, etc. So Jesus was hanged on a cross, not hung on a cross. I know that difference doesn't even matter, but grammatically I promise it's a rule. Um, this is why you do it to the leaders, so that you can curse them, so that when they go to the place of the dead, they go in a cursed way, not in a normal way. You're trying to give them a bad afterlife-ish. <laughs> um, Achan is the one who steals the stuff. Notice what he steals, some silver and a bunch of garments. Now, don't think he was a drag queen. Uh, it turns out that uh, garments were really expensive. It could take you a, an entire year to make one garment. So, so actually, in a pre-monetary economy, a garment might be worth more to you than silver. Because that takes a whole year, whereas if you've got a good silver mine, maybe not. Right? He takes it and he hides it, and God sort of directs them to where they go. Now, the people lose the next battle. They win Jericho. They lose at Ai. Ai means ruin, and it's probably a pun. It's been a ruined city for as long as archaeologists can figure it out. It's where the Israelites go and get ruined because <laughs> they lose. Uh, they end up taking it by trickery next, but um, notice the penalty for Achan. They, they find him, and they sort of say, hey, we know you did it, so confess, and he does. And then, who gets punished? His whole family, including his servants, his children, and his wife. And what's the punishment? Killed how? They stone him and they burn everything. So no one can have the garments because they burn them up, right? They stone them. Now, we have in our mind, and I just want to introduce to you that there's maybe two ways stoning happens. The number one way I think you have in your head is people get in a circle and they throw rocks at you till you're dead, right? Is this in general how we think of it? Yeah, there's some evidence that there's a different way of stoning, which is that people lay down on the ground and you take a big rock, like a boulder, and you roll it on their chest and it crushes them. Now you might be thinking, who would do that? Socrates would. <laughs> Remember, his choice was run away or drink poison. If you're willing to drink poison, you'd be equally willing for someone to roll a boulder on your chest that would crush you and kill you. Which one's more humane? <laughs> well, they both seem awful, but I think I'd pick the boulder on my chest over somebody throwing rocks at me till I was dead. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, in terms of like pain level, this seems really bad. Um, so, so this was a professor of mine at Emory that says that stoning is this way of, of killing somebody within a community and that's why they would accept it, because they die a member of the community instead of being chased outside. Does this sort of make sense, what I'm saying? So it's very possible that the whole family submitted to the punishment. And the Bible definitely, notice, has a very different understanding of how communities work. One person did something wrong, the whole community loses. One person does something wrong, their whole family unit represents corruption and has to be expunged. We don't think of it that way, right? 
Like if somebody were a mass murderer, we would never punish their wife and children, right? We punish the individual. I'm actually really grateful for that, aren't you? Makes a lot of sense. But I want to point out to you, the Bible doesn't think that way. The Bible thinks in terms of family units. And the Bible thinks that when one person's a mass murderer, it's not just bad for the nation in the sense that that person hurts other people. It's, a, it's like, a, like a stain on the garment of national life. It's not just that that person will hurt people in the country. It's that that person represents like a black eye in the body of the nation. They're all going to suffer until that can get remedied. We don't think of it that way. We don't. Yes, sir. Yeah, much of the rest of the world does believe that today. Just in the West, we don't. Do you know what I mean? We've, I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm just trying to point out that we have a much more individualistic belief about transgression and punishment. I don't know. My mom always said, Well, I mean, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? And, of course, we have other sayings, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. We have these idioms, but our legal system doesn't work like that. Our legal system is individualistic, yeah. And in general, when somebody does something wrong in our community, we don't say, oh God, the community's hurt. We say, how could you do that? Do, do, do you know what I mean? We have an individualistic response, like you're the problem, get rid of you and we'll be fine. What do you know, we call that scapegoating, and of course this happened in World War II. It happens anytime like a, a water source becomes poison and we say a witch did it <laughs> you know i mean this is sort of the, that's sort of the deal that's the scapegoating mechanism yes sir um so when it comes to stoning if someone is stoned however they're stoned inside yes the community they die as part of the community that's right but oftentimes you hear that people are taken outside the walls of the city where they are stoned mm -hmm. i at that point they are no part they're not part of the community anymore. yeah i, I that's the bad one. Yeah, I think that's right. We're going to take you out and kill you outside the walls. Now, there's another problem with pollution. You can't, you can't kill an animal in the walls. People live there. It's real small. And then there's like blood and flies and disease. So in general, you want to kill things outside the walls if you can. That's why there's, there's sort of gutters in Jerusalem so that the blood can flow out of the walls. You, you know, you don't want just a bunch of... Because you can't have the blood. And there's a lot of animals being killed. And if it just were in the street, uh, there'd be all kind of pestilence. So you get rid of that stuff. That's what bothered me about the tabernacles, that were, there was so much killing going on and blood being sprayed on whatever um, altar or thing was there. And the amount of yeah. disease that would occur as a result of that. Wait till you read the numbers Next week, 10,000 oxen. And, and that can't possibly be right. That number is not even possible to, to, to think about that. Uh, yeah, anyway, this is not, this is, yeah. Okay, a couple of things about Joshua. He renews the covenant with them at the end, 
And he says, as for me, my house will follow the Lord. And they say, we will too. And he says, no, you won't. You can't do it. <laughs> Isn't that a great preacher? Right? We'll all pledge. No, you won't. You can't do it. You'll fail. I mean, <laughs> that's what he does, right? And surely the guy wasn't really that guy, you know? I mean, again, you just got to, because that's not an inspirational way of leadership, is it? You get everyone to say amen, and you're like, don't you, you're lying. You don't believe what I'm saying. I mean, that's what he does. The other thing that's funny, we skipped this in Joshua, is uh, we skipped it because they didn't have us read the whole book. There's almost two books within a book. If you read chapters 1 through 12, everything's going great. I mean, there's some minor setbacks like here, um, but everything's going great. They, they conquer their enemies. People are fleeing before them. And then at 13, and this is the great verse in 13. I've got this one memorized. It reads like this. Now, Joshua was old and well advanced in years. And God said to Joshua, Joshua, you're old and well advanced in years. I just think that's cute. Um, why, why would you say that, God? <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm, I'm feeling pretty spry. <laughs> anyway, the rest of the book, and, and God continues, you're old and well advanced in years. And there's a lot to do that you aren't going to get done. And if you read through the next 13 chapters, we heard about these great victories, but then we hear about all this stuff wasn't done. And, and in Judges, we get to read, like, there's a major problem here. The Hebrew people have come in, and now they've been enslaved by the people they were there to conquer over and over and over again. So there's almost two different tracks. I do want to point out, remember that trickery became an important thing in Genesis. Um, tricking Isaac out of the blessing lying to Abimelech and Pharaoh about who your wife is, it's my sister, blah, 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 right? Um, trickering your uncle out of the herd. And then notice that the way they conquer the city is with trickery. They send a big camouflage group to hide in the bushes, and then they send a bunch of inept people to pretend to attack the city. They run away, the city chases them, the ambush is sprung, and that's it, right? Um, now, now, you could say, no, Mike, that's just good fighting sense, but it's trickery. And again, there's something about, the, about these stories, in the old stories in, in Genesis all the way through, that seem to love tricks. That's why a lot of people will tell you, instead of a Pentateuch, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua might ought to be read with it. That'd be called a Hexateuch, because it'd be six. Some people will tell you, well, no, you've got to read Judges as well, and then the Samuels, and that'd be nine. That'd be called an Enneatuch. So, so, because those documents read similarly in the sense that they're a narrative with similar themes. Okay? Just want to tell you, scholars can't even agree about the original form here. We know what it is now, but we don't know how it started. Any other questions about Joshua? Did I bore you guys to death with that? It's kind of a weird book, though, you know? I mean, it's all about strength and courage and, and, and military and obedience. And, and I do want to point out that we have some of those vestiges in Christianity today. There's a hymn like Onward Christian Soldiers. That's very Joshua, right? That we're warriors for God. And... and it's a good thing, I think, to stop and ask, are we comfortable with that metaphor? 
of Christian soldiering. And now I'm just going to move on to Judges. <laughs> now don't be fooled by Judges. It's just really darn annoying that they're called Judges. They didn't judge anything. A judge is a charismatic military leader. A judge is somebody who wins like a key battle, and that's pretty much what they do. Or perhaps they're like some kind of clever general. But you need to know that in the ancient world, generals didn't sit back like Napoleon and direct the army. The general led the troops on the field. And this is true of kings as well. So when you read that Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, was a fearsome warrior, it means he was the best fighter in the nation. And he led the army out. People tried to kill him and they couldn't because he was that bad of a dude. Right? Just, this is what kings do. This is what judges do. They're the most fearsome, nasty fighter that you can imagine. And that's about it. They don't do anything nice. Usually they're really bad. And what we see, she said in the book of Judges, first of all, the conquest is incomplete. There's all these people who have now made slaves out of the Hebrews, especially the Philistines. The Philistines, if you know your, your ancient history, actually come from Mycenae, they're Mycenaean Greeks that were whatever. There was ruin in Mycenae, and so they, they sort of immigrated, and they've got, what do you know, iron weapons. Nobody else does. So you're thinking through this at the time. I think I've told you this before. The Hebrew people are living in the Stone Age, not even the Bronze Age. By the way, the difference between bronze and stone, not that big. Bronze is not very naturally abundant. So the only kind of people that had bronze weapons were like kings and petty chieftains. Everybody else had wood clubs. Maybe they had a bronze nail sticking out of it. But, but, but don't think that people had swords and scabbards. They had like flint knives and flint arrowheads. Okay? The iron people, and there's stages of the Iron Age. I mean, you have to get iron really hot to smelt it right. In the early Iron Age, they just sort of made it crude, but it was strong enough for them to make an axle so they could have a chariot. The chariots weren't super strong. If you turned them a lot, the wheels would fall off because they just hadn't figured this out in the early Iron Age. And chariots weren't really used... Um, to run people over that put a lot of stress on the axle. A chariot was used to, get ar to move archers around, who probably were using flint arrowheads, right? I mean, it doesn't really matter if it's flint or iron. If it's sharp, it's going to go through your body. Right? I mean, that's just sort of the deal. So, so the Philistines had chariots, which are movable archery platforms, and everybody else just kind of had to run with theirs. And that's the difference. You can really redeploy an army quickly. As the Iron Age progresses, you can make weapons out of iron, which, what do you know, will cut through the wood ones that everybody else is using. The Hebrew people have wood ones. The Philistines have hard iron ones. The Hebrew people have flint knives. The Philistines have, um, not steel, but they have iron. And they, and they don't Notice in Judges, they never figure out how to make iron. They never get the technology. So they're really backward. I just want you to know, these are not the technologically advanced people who were behind the Manhattan Project. Right? <laughs> Things changed on that one. Um, there is, at the beginning, everyone did what was right in their own eyes because the people didn't have a king. And then you get to read the whole book about how people increasingly do what's right in their own eyes, and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And one other theme, she said this, is the Deuteronomistic history. So this is the person who wrote Deuteronomy, second law, maybe written in exile. I disagree with that, but anyway. Um, 
Here's how it goes. God blesses you. Everything's great. You get comfortable. You turn away from God's rules because you've got the stuff. Then God punishes you. So you repent, and then God blesses you again. But then you just do all that over and over and over and over again. And that's the cycle in the book of Judges. A judge delivers them. They have an opportunity to live bigger, but they don't. So God punishes them again. And, and the directive is God allows the people of the land. So don't hear orchestrates. God doesn't make them enslave the Hebrews. God just stops delivering them. It's almost like blessing means God spares you from the natural consequences. But when you turn away from God's way, you get the natural consequences of what you're doing. Does that, does that make sense? Donna? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And actually, that's what I want to describe to you now, <laughs> is the downward cycle of the judges. No, 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 no. There's actually... This, we're, we're struggling with women's roles. And as I told you, there's this book that came out of Harvard Divinity School, Rediscovering Eve. And that's the update to the, the book that came out in the early 90s called Discovering Eve. And this is the one I told you where families live on compounds. There's a men's building and a women's building. The women control child rearing and procreation and matchmaking, which is why in Genesis, a man leaves his father and mother to be united with the bride in the woman's compound. This is how the women choose. Notice throughout Genesis, the women picks the favored son, the one who gets the blessing, not the men. So, so we have this like pre-governmental pre system where men and women, while they might have had separate roles, enjoyed a lot more equality. And then what, what, what the book sort of says, and archaeology seems to suggest, is that as time developed, particularly as government kind of consolidated and became monarchical, women were definitely subjugated. So were women fighters in, in prehistory? Maybe. You know, and, and I told you that Miriam is called a prophet, and Miriam's the one who sings the song first. When Miriam says, I will sing unto the Lord, for God has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. That's the oldest version. Moses sings a song that includes that and a bunch of other lines, and every scholar will tell you that one's later. Miriam got the, the song first, and then Moses added some verses. A hundred years later in some ways, to subjugate Miriam as prophet. Now, you may not like that. I'm just telling you this is how scholars read the book. And Deborah, interestingly enough, is a prophet, not a prophetess, not diminutive, because that word's diminutive, just like the word priestess is diminutive, right? Deborah is a prophet, and she actually, I want to tell you, is the only good judge, <laughs> in the sense that she doesn't do anything morally reprehensible that I know. All the other people are just not good people. And they get worse. So I wish I had a great answer to your question, but apparently she's a fighter. The Israelis have women integrated into their fighting force in somewhat in different ways, but women can carry machine guns and fight. I mean, you read the history of Israel when they were fighting for freedom in 1948. Women were on the front lines if they chose. And they were pretty successful. Because think about modern warfare. It's about, can you shoot? <laughs> you know, I mean, are you a good shooter? I don't think that's gender specific, being able to shoot. Same with arrows. 
You know what I mean? And you're a woman, you're a female golfer, so I think you get this, right? I mean, you can watch, I shouldn't say this, this is going to sound very gender biased to me, but I'm going to anyway. You can watch men and women's golf, and men can sometimes hit the ball farther, but they rarely are as consistent as women because men try to strengthen it, and women have much better form, and they're much more consistent, right? So I would put a female golfer against John Daly any day because he'll have one good drive out of 18 holes, <laughs> and the other 17 are going to be in the lake. I mean, they're going to be really far into the lake. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the judges. Uh, Othniel is the first judge. He wins a military battle. He gets to marry Caleb's daughter. All that's great. Nothing bad yet. The next judge is this guy named Ehud, and there's something wrong with Ehud. He's left-handed. Now, you may say, oh, Mike, left-handed people are more creative. In the ancient world, you, no one's left-handed. You're not allowed to be. There's one thing you do with your left hand. In India today, in Israel then, and it's not clean, <laughs> okay? So Othniel's left-handed. It tells you there's something wrong with this guy. And all he does is he goes and kills the, the, the king, Eglon, who's ginormously fat. And, and we think, oh, what a morally reprehensible guy, fat. In the ancient world, that was a sign of wealth. When you're fat, it's because you have enough food to eat all the time. You don't work. That's how you can be fat. So it shows you he's really wealthy. He goes and tells the king, and I want to tell you the Bible goes into some really great detail. Remember, the king is really fat. Ehud's left-handed. He's an assassin. That's his whole ministry is assassinating. How can he do it? Well, when you're right-handed, you put your dagger here on your thigh so that you can draw it because this would be really weird and you'd probably cut yourself. So when he goes into the city, they look on his left thigh and they don't see it because it's on his right thigh. Only somebody who's left-handed would do that. Again, left-handed is what you wipe your behind with, okay? So nobody is going to use that as their dominant hand. There's something wrong with this man. He goes to have a conference with the king. Now, I don't want to make this overly graphic, but this is how it reads. The king is in his upper chamber, which means he's on the toilet. And the way the conference is, is that Ehud goes to talk to him while he's on the toilet and stabs him in the belly. And the Hebrew reads that he stabs him in the stomach, and the stomach eats the dagger. That's how fat he is. His, his stomach eats the knife. And then comes this bizarre phrase in Hebrew, and then the dirt came out. So the poor king is constipated on the toilet, and when Ehud kills him, he accomplishes his mission, and he's dead. Now, I know you're saying, Mike, that's gross. Why'd you say that? That's how it reads. That's just how it reads. And notice the servants wait until past the point of embarrassment. That is, he's been on the potty for more than an hour, which is embarrassing. Right? There's something really wrong, and they go to check, and when you know he's dead, and Ehud's phoned the coop. Anything righteous or priestly or moral about that? Uh, that's judge two. Notice, there's almost something bad because he's left-handed. Then comes Judge 3, who's a woman. Now, now, again, at the time, hard to know whether that is actually diminished. But certainly, as history continued, that would be diminished. The next judge is female. She's a prophet, and a man comes to her and says, hey, we need to go, you know, tell me what to do. And she says, go fight, you'll win. And he said, well, I'm not going unless you come. <laughs> And, and again, this, this makes the man look bad. The woman wins the day. So you may think in your head, I don't really see how that's a step down from being left-handed, but trust me, culturally, small step down. Okay? So, so she goes with him, 
they win, and good enough. The next one is Gideon, and you might say, how is Gideon bad? I learned in Sunday school he's really good. Well, he's not. <laughs> um, Gideon's a coward for lots of reasons. He's, he's down um, separating wheat from chaff uh, underground at night so that no one will see him. He's afraid to be seen. Now, we could explain that away, right? Because if people saw him doing it, then they would take all the product and he wouldn't have it. So, so maybe he's a realist. God tells him to cut down the Asherah pole to Baal in the middle of the city. When does he do it? In the middle of the night. So no one will see him. When the people find out and they say, who did it? They say, Gideon did it. Does he fight for himself? No. His daddy saves his life. <laughs> his daddy says, hey, let Baal take care of himself. Don't touch my son. This guy's a coward. Gideon says, hey, God, I want to prove it's you, so you make the fleece wet and the field dry. And then the next day, make the field wet and the fleece dry. Sometimes we've heard, I heard in Sunday school, see, you can ask God for what you want. No, no, biblically, this is not a good thing. You're just supposed to believe. <laughs> Weak faith, coward. Um, he even takes on an epithet that is idolatrous. They start to call him Jeroboam which you've heard means contends with Baal, but it can also mean Baal contends. So who is, Baal, who is Gideon actually worshiping? We, we don't know. The story goes on, and this is the cute Sunday school part, right? Is that there's this big army and God says too many people. Send a bunch of them back, because if you win on numbers, you'll think you won instead of me winning. Right? Then they have to do the ridiculous thing. They either drink out of their hand, which any civilized person would do, or, or they lap the lake. Oh, the shame my mother would have if I was a lake, lap, lake, lake lapper. Keep the lake lappers and send the civilized people home. Wow, that's a good sorting mechanism. So, so then they do the thing. They break the jars. God sets all the mercenaries against each other. And people didn't fight. Again, notice, notice. The, the, the other army is not unified either. So they have a king, but they're not unified. That's how they win. And then the people say, Gideon, we'll make you king. And he says, no, don't make me king. And then he names his son Abimelech, which means my father is the king. <laughs> no, don't make me king. I'll never be king. And he makes a big breastplate full of um, gold and jewels so that he can wear it around. That's what kings wear. So, so I just want you to know, Gideon makes himself king and is a coward, and that's why he's another step down. Gideon's son, um, Abimelech, by the way, is a bastard, and that's important that you know that because he's a step down too, right? That's not a good thing to be in the ancient world. Um, the next judge, Jephthah, is the child of a prostitute, which is worse than being a bastard. I'm using that word in the technical sense. Does this, should I say illegitimate child? Um, so it's, it's even worse to be the child of a prostitute because remember, that's the child of a priestess. Now, what does Jephthah do? He makes a vow to God. The first thing that comes out of my house, I'll kill. Now, this is ambiguous. Was he really thinking of killing his wife? 
We don't know. In the ancient world, you would put your cattle in your house. And if you've been here on Christmas Eve, I've told you the last two years that the manger is here, people live in beds up here, and the animals are here, and they eat out of the manger. So it's sort of like a, a three-foot step up. You need to keep your animals in house at night so they don't get away, right? And so they can stay warm. So the animals literally live in the house with you in this sort of ha- one-and-a-half-story living, if that makes sense. So, so we could have been thinking, I'll sacrifice an animal, but here's the truth. Just what a dumb guy this is, <laughs> right? He could say, the first animal that comes out of my house, or the best animal. In some ways, if you say the first thing that comes out, well, Jesus doesn't even have to be the best one. Now, as a parent, I learned that when I tell my child a consequence, I should follow through so that they know I'm reliable, right? So when you make a promise, you keep your promise, everyone knows to trust you. However, when you make a stupid promise, I think there's a helpful parenting decision that says, wow, I said that and it was so dumb. I'm not going to actually do that. We'll do this instead. I realize that's inconsistent, but it teaches our children to think and to repent. So his daughter comes out and he burns her alive. That's much worse than being a coward. Is this okay, what I'm saying? It's, this is gross. And the rabbis, by the way, say, God is not glorified in him keeping the vow. The rabbis tell you exactly what I'm telling you. Each one gets worse than the one before. And notice, there's nothing religious or moral about that at all. It's disgusting. Because we already know, God says, don't sacrifice human beings to me. I won't accept that. And he does it. Then comes Samson. Now, Samson is really a big hope. Yes, ma'am. to mourn her virginity, which it's important that you know there's no word in Hebrew for a woman who's never had sex with a man. Virginity means her maidenhood in the sense that her young woman's life. So she gets to mourn herself before she dies. That's really all it means. This kind of festival. Well, it depends what kind of Jewish lady you are, but really that probably has a lot to do with receiving your period, quite honestly, and transition between being a a girl and a woman. Does that sort of make sense? We don't know how old his daughter is. She could have been eight. God, isn't that scary? It's interesting to think that this story happens in the Bible and there's no way the Bible wants you to do it. I mean, it's important that that we realize that. In fact, notice that God doesn't intervene a single time in Judges. People do whatever they want. And that's the point in some ways of the book. If you leave people to do whatever they want, this is what they'll do. That's why you need a government to tell them what to do. You need a king who's in charge. Notice that God used to be really involved in the characters' lives. Showed up physically to Joshua. God didn't show up in Judges. There's only one show, and it's the next worst judge. (laughs) It's Samson. Now, he's real special because he's going to be a Nazarite his whole life. He'll never cut his hair or drink wine really hard in the ancient world, not to drink something fermented really hard. And he'll never touch anything dead. That means he's a vegetarian. 
Right, just think through that. This is the strongest man ever and proof that you can do it as a vegetarian. Um, Samson's dad is an idiot. I, I'm sorry. Have you noticed? The, the, the angel shows up to mom and says, you're going to have a baby. And mom says to dad, hey, a messenger from God said, and came and said, I'm going to have a baby, and that he's going to be a Nazarite, so we're never going to do this and this. And the dad says, what does all that mean? <laughs> and so the next day, the angel comes back and says, nothing new to dad. Nothing new. Says exactly the same thing. And then dad says, let's offer a sacrifice to you. And, and then the messenger jumps in the fire and goes up to heaven. And dad says, we're going to die. And the, the mom says, honey, I think if he was going to kill us, right, he wouldn't be giving us a baby. So, so like, let's think through that. Um, just a total dummy. I just want to point out. Yes. Right point. It's a good admonition, isn't it? And in some ways, this is part of the idea of where you get the immaculate conception from, too. The boy's going to be a Nazarite. No wine, so don't give him any in utero either. Go retroactively so that he never even touches him. Um, did you notice they can't tell whether the angel is a human being or a four-faced, six-winged, you know what I mean? Clearly the angel looks like a human being. And, and again, this is the ambiguity in the Bible. Angel doesn't mean always winged things. It just means messenger. It could be a humanoid or a human being, indistinguishable from anybody else. What is distinguishable is when it jumps into a fire and flies up to heaven. That's strange. Um, anyway, Dad's dumb. We, we're sort of on with the story. The boy is terrible. Terrible. He spends his life breaking the vows. So at the end of his life, his hair gets cut. He kills the lion and eats out of the lion. That's the dead thing and he drinks plenty of wine. Uh, he's not righteous at all. In fact, he makes these riddles that are really just, I mean, they're not even riddles. They're not anything you can figure out. They're little secrets he's made to taunt his enemies and destroy them. He's petty and vindictive. He's a pyromaniac, right? He ties torches to foxtails and sends them into a field. And that's a judge. That's a Nazarite. Again, he is the opposite of a Nazarite. Nazarites are people who make solemn holy vows to God and do this stuff as a sign. He never keeps them. He's got major problems, <laughs> like his trust in women, right? You'd think he'd have learned the first time around that when you tell the secret of the riddle to a Philistine, they might have ulterior motives in knowing the answer. The first time that happens, right, is to his wife, and then he has to go kill a bunch of people and steal their clothes. Remember, clothes are important like money. They, they cost more than money, so that, that's a big deal. Then there's Delilah, and it's sort of like, wow, Samson, like, do you have a death wish? Or do you, just, do you actually love this woman and are just incompetent about, about what she's trying to do to you? Because she shows him three times not to trust her. Don't tell this woman your secret. And then she does. Notice she's a prostitute. That means she's a priestess. He's worshiping other gods. This is a judge. And then, sorry, Samson's the first suicide bomber in the history of the world. He kills more people by killing himself than he did when he was alive. 
That's a biblical idea. It does not come from the Quran. Does the Bible want us to do this? No! <laughs> this is really important. Did you learn any of this stuff when you were a child on the felt board? I just learned how swarthy he was and heroic he was. And of course, what I learned is heroism is about being strong, and it isn't. Heroism is about being kind and thoughtful and faithful, and he's none of those things. So you see, in some ways, he's way worse than Jephthah, or at least slightly worse. We skip the story of the Levite who makes an idol and worships the idol, and then the tribe of Dan steals the idol. And then we skip the story you'll never hear read in church. It's not even in the daily office. It's arguably the most horrific story in the Bible, and I want to tell it to you now to make sure you know it. And you can go back and read it in the latter parts of Judges. This is where a Levite has a concubine. Remember, a Levite's a local butcher. He has a concubine, which is somebody uh, who doesn't have wife status but belongs to him anyway. He mistreats her, and she runs back to her father. The Levite goes to collect his property. The father releases the daughter, tries really hard not to do it, knows that the daughter belongs to the Levite, so has to send her. The Levite then goes into a town and stays with somebody, and just like the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the residents of the town come at night and say, give us that man. The Levite takes his concubine and kicks her out the door into an angry mob and locks the door. The story reads that they raped the woman all night long to show, it's not sexual at all, it's a show of dominance. In the morning, the Levite oh, wakes up, sees the woman clutching the threshold of the door, puts her on his donkey and takes her home and chops her into 12 pieces. Doesn't say she's dead. And then sends a piece to each clan in Israel to unite them around destroying the, the tribe of Benjamin. He says, has such a thing in Israel ever been done? The tribes come and they kill Benjamin. <laughs> the whole tribe is almost eliminated. In order to save the tribe, they put on a festival. Or actually, they sneak up to a festival. That's one of these virginity festivals we were just talking about, Donna, where, where girls become women. And in the middle of the girls dancing, they put bags over them and steal them and give them to the Benjamites so that they'll produce daughters. This is the lowest point in Judges, and it says, in those days, everyone did what was in their, right in their own eyes because there was no king. Do you know why we don't read that story in church? Well, it's awful. <laughs> it's just awful. Um, that's X-rated that's X-rated material to hear that a woman was raped all night and chopped into pieces by her owner. That's how the story reads. And one wonders who was if this degrees of worseness, I don't know. But are the people who do that to her worse than the man who kicked around to have that done to her? And this is a Levite. This is how the priests are behaving. In some ways, Judges is trying to show you this downward spiral that ends in the epitome of horror with the hope that a king will fix it. And when we read Samuel, we'll hear whether a king fixes it or not. 
And this way the Bible has another conversation with itself. Are things better with the king or worse? So that's what we get to read a little bit next week. Um, the text said that we could go and read the story of Ruth if you want to. Ruth is a story about Leverite marriage, where Naomi has two boys. She names them weakly and sickly. And a verse later, they're dead, because that's what happens to weak and sick people. They die. And, and then the daughters are told to go home. Ruth goes with Naomi and basically has a baby to replace Naomi's dead son. That is, Ruth's baby will be her husband. I mean, not really, but replaces her husband. That's how the story reads. There's a really interesting book, because some people say the book of Ruth is this lovely story. It is a story about women surviving. Um, but Ruth goes to Boaz, her distant relative, who owns the fields that she's gleaning in. Remember the Torah says you can't harvest at all. You, you have to leave some for gleaning. So this, basically this homeless woman comes and gleans every day, and Boaz thinks that she's a nice-looking lady. So he leaves extra for her. Then she goes to the threshing floor in the middle of the night. Now the threshing floor is a place where you work hard and it's a place where you play hard. And she uncovers Boaz's feet and lays down next to his feet. And he wakes up and there's the word in Hebrew, boom shakalaka. <laughs> and there's a woman lying next to his feet. And this is where it's really important to know this is clearly the euphemism. She clearly uncovers not his feet, but his genitals. And he wakes up surprised that there's somebody laying next to his genitals. He treats her very well. Mother-in-law's plan is that he'll have sex with her and they'll be married. Because that's, that's how you marry somebody in the Bible, right? He says, let's not do this yet, let's do this the right way. Because there's somebody more related to you than me. He should be the one who gives you a son, not me. They go ask him, hey, do you want to give her a son who will get your inheritance instead of you? He says, no, I don't want that. <laughs> you have her. And Boaz has no children, so he has nothing to lose, you see. He gives Ruth the baby, who's going to be the father, eventually the great-grandfather of David, right? He gives Ruth the baby. He loses everything he'll ever have to this child who is not considered his child. He's considered Naomi's child. I know, you, I know this is confusing, but that's how it goes. Boaz's son is not his son. It's Naomi's son. When Ruth gives birth to him, it's, the child is laid and nurses from Naomi, who could not possibly have nursed that baby. She's 70 years old. Symbolically, she does it to show it's her boy. And that's the book of Ruth. <laughs> it is a great, it's a great story about women's survival. But I'm going to tell you, I think in the middle of survival, Boaz is probably the hero this time. Rarely do I pick the man to be the hero. But in this story, he's the one who, does, who follows the law, who respects her dignity, who sort of does the nice thing and gives up his entire future for a child that will never be his. If you're willing to give up your inheritance, you should do it. <laughs> and the guy says, no, 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 I don't want to do that. Well, sure. But, but see, what's interesting is Boaz knows the rules and reminds the rules. But he has the opportunity on the threshing floor to take her as his wife, and he doesn't do it. I mean, that's what I want to point out. It's, 
And Naomi, I don't know if you want a mother-in-law like her. Now, granted, she'll help you survive. But when she says, oh, honey, just go have sex with that man, and he'll have to pay for you. I, I mean, <laughs> I'm not real comfortable with that, even though I understand their survival's at stake. I don't really want to ever give my daughter that advice. But another way to think of it, right, is that women have had to do things like that to survive in, in, the, not so distant, in the not so distant past, right? Um, and, and sometimes we unfortunately condemn the women for that, but I would tell you the men are the ones who should be condemned for doing that to the women, putting them in a position where they feel like that's their only option, and it may be their only option. This is like when somebody um, visits a prostitute and you punish the prostitute instead of the John. You, you know, in cities where you publish the John's names in the newspaper, prostitution goes down real fast because now they've been outed publicly. Okay, you probably didn't want to hear that sermon from me. Um, hey, that's the end of the reading. Any other questions? Well, I think you'll read this in the next thing. The number one reason they want a king is because everybody else has one and they don't. I think the other thing is they have never been able to unite as a group of clans. They've never been able to do that. And they have this idea that a king will necessarily do that. Now, we'll read that that doesn't actually work very well. But they have in their mind that somebody will obey a king. Again, we'll get to read about that next time. A warning about next time. It's a lot more reading than we're used to. So... You don't have to be as detailed. You can, no, you don't. And it'll tell you this. It'll tell you speed reading. So instead of it being like seven minutes at a time, maybe 10, it might be like 15. But it tells you, it tells you, you don't, try not to be super careful. Be as careful as you want. But, you know, you don't. Speed reading classes. Yeah, I can actually. I used, to, I used to give those. Yeah, I can do it. It needs to happen sooner. <laughs> yeah, because after next week, you won't need them anymore. Uh, no, it's much longer next week than it's going to be. Uh, really, again. So just keep that in your mind. It's, it's longer than, 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 than it needs to be. Um, one other great thing to remind you, because you're a captive audience, is that you are all welcome to come back tonight to toast all the saints. That's at 6.30. And um, we'll sing a couple songs, talk about sainthood, and talk about some saints in our own lives, and we'll toast them with a margarita. And um, on Sunday... Um, we're going to have a wacky All Saints 1030 with Dia de los Muertos, the, the um, Central American way of remembering the saints, honestly, uh, with the mariachi band, and it'll be kind of crazy. It's also Consecration Sunday. So this is the day we want to bless your pledges. And you can bring them that day, and we'll do it. But it's, I, as a priest, think it's really important to bless our pledges. I do. Because, you know, we make these pledges... Not certain of what's going to happen in the next year, but we're going to say, God, this is our intention. We want you to bless it. So if you don't have your pledge in, I would love it if you bring it on Sunday so that I can bless it. See you next week. <laughs>